end, we had been told by the doctors that the end was near and could come at any moment. But she had stayed around much longer than the doctors had originally said she would. And so we thought it would be okay to go ahead and take a break from being there with her every day. And in prayer, in hopes that she would at least last for one more day, we were able to go and take in the Rangers game. We decided to do that. Um, it was a much-anticipated evening of Rangers baseball. We were having a good time. Things were going well. It was very relaxing and entertaining. The Rangers were playing well, and I was even, even still, as we were relaxed and enjoying ourselves, the situation was on my, on my mind, and I was checking my phone continuously to make sure that I hadn't missed any calls. Just as the seventh inning stretch rolled around, I happened to take my phone out and notice that I had missed a call uh, from a 903 number that I didn't recognize. And so, before I was able, Chris, to hit the button and call that number back to see who was calling me, my brother-in-law's name popped up on my phone as I was receiving a call from him. And when I answered his call, my greatest fears were realized, and I said, hello, and there was silence. And I paused, and I said, hello again. My hope was is that it was just a bad connection, and I was hoping that uh, it was a bad connection, and when I said hello again, I was hoping that I would hear his normal jovial voice on the other end with one of those special greetings that he always had only for me. He would always, when I answered the phone and he would call, he'd always say one of two things with his jovial voice. He either called me Junebug. Now that has no significance because I don't know where he gets that from. Or he would say, Billy Ray. No idea. It's just him. And I was hoping that uh, it was just a bad connection. I would hear that, but instead of his normal greeting, I heard something from him that I had never heard in all the years that I had known him, that he and my sister had been together. He was sobbing uncontrollably. And it was then that I realized what had happened. Without him even having to say anything, it hit me that the call I had missed was from hospice and it had happened. So immediately before the seventh inning stretch was over, we got up and headed. Son and I walked to the car and made our way back to Tyler. And as I traveled along the way, coming back home to Tyler, there were many thoughts. I went a half, two-hour drive that crossed my mind. I thought about the fond memories that we had together. I thought about what she had meant to me and who she was to me. Uh, there were thoughts that came to mind uh, that still come to mind even to this day. One of the ones that immediately came to mind as I, as I made my way back was this thought that I was not able to be there to see her take her last breath, which is something that I always wanted to do thought about that, and still to this day, I think about that. But then as I continue to travel, uh, other thoughts, fond memories and thoughts continue to come to mind. As I barreled down I-20, breaking all kind of laws, uh, misty-eyed, just praying that the Lord would bless us to be able to make it. Other thoughts began to come to mind, and uh, things began to set in. The reality began to set in that she was actually gone. One of the thoughts that came to mind was, and still is to this day. Now, before I say this, I need to say that uh, you may not agree with the statement I'm about to make because the statement that I'm about to make is extremely, admittedly biased. 
So you may not agree with it, but one of the thoughts that came to mind as I was speeding down I-20 was, uh, she was the absolute very best mother in all of the history of motherhood. Now, I, I, I understand if you don't agree with that because you might think that yours was. But I'll have to argue that I had the very best mother in all the history of motherhood. It's because her life, her life was marked with and by unconditional love. She didn't care. She loved us all unconditionally. It was marked by that. Uh, as well as this idea of unconventional walk and talk. The way she lived was just different. The, 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 reason why, the reason why I say it was different is because uh, it, it was always about helping others for her. She never put herself first. And, and that, was, that was not normal. I know we, we, we like to think of it as the normal, the way that we should live, but not very many people really live up to that standard. But for her, it was what she lived by. In fact, she was so bad with it that, or, or good with it, that we had to keep some things from her for her own good. We did that. It was a practice. My, my family and I, we would, we would, there were certain things we wouldn't tell her. It was for her own good. Because if she found out that there was a problem, a need, or even sometimes a want, she would not rest until whatever it was was met or the problem was solved. She was the type of person, she's the type of person who was always the loudest in the stands at the sporting events. Uh, uh, you didn't really want to be a referee if one of her grandkids were participating or even when I was playing was participating in sports. See, she was, she was quite an athlete in her day, and she knew her stuff. And so she would give the referees a tough time, whether it was a basketball game, a baseball game, a track. It didn't matter, football game. If, if, if it was not going her baby's way, the refs would hear about it. She was vocal, and if you did anything, uh, you could hear her in the stands. She was loud. She was, just, she was just that kind of person. Um, she, had, she had that kind of personality. Um, she was indeed one of a kind. Myself and everyone who knew her can truly say, that we were indeed blessed by the best. Now, I do realize that not everyone had the same experience or the same model to, pot, to pattern their life after as, as I did, and that's okay. Because the fact of the matter is, the reality is, the truth is that uh, as perfect as she was in my eyes, she was still a flawed, fallible human being, just like all of us. But th there is good news. Even if you didn't have that kind of an experience, if you didn't have that kind of a pattern to follow, that kind of a model to look at, there is good news for all of us. Good news is that uh, we all have an ideal, perfect, flawless infallible model of unconditional love and unconditional wisdom and walk in the person of Jesus Christ. No matter what your experience was growing up, no matter uh, what you can look back on as positive or negative, we all have a model that we can look at and pattern our lives after. All of us that are part of his family have been and continue to be blessed by the ultimate very best of the best, 
His name is Jesus. And it is this Jesus that we encounter now in Matthew chapter 5. But as we encounter him here in Matthew chapter 5, in chapter 5, it's important for us to look back at how Matthew has recorded his life thus far. And if we look back uh, to what brings us to where we are now, uh, we'll find out that uh, Matthew thus far has recorded the genealogy and the birth of Jesus in chapter 1. He's recorded the visit of the wise men in Herod's failed plot to kill him as a child in chapter 2. We'll find that John the Baptist both preparing the way and baptizing Jesus in chapter 3. At the beginning of chapter 4, we'll find Christ being led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Christ then rebuking Satan three times in response to this temptation. Then in the middle of chapter 4, Matthew records the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and the calling of his first disciples. You'll recall that Jesus uh, was beginning his ministry, and in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, the text says that while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew. They were casting a net. They were fishing, and Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishes of men. And the Bible says that without another word, Without anything else happening, they immediately drop their nets and begin to follow Jesus. Such a wonderful picture of Jesus and how he would encourage and how he would inspire discipleship. Then at the end of chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, right before we get to where we are today, his fame The text says, by then had spread. His fame had spread because of his proclaiming of the gospel and because of the many miracles that he had performed. And so people had begun to flock and follow him, bringing their sick, bringing the ones that they felt like needed his attention and needed a miracle from him. They brought them to Jesus. They were following him everywhere he went. And sure enough, when they brought them, he healed them. He he was true to who He was. They followed him. Now, after all of that, we arrive in chapter 5. Many of you know that chapters 5 through 7 embody what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's called that. uh, It gets its name from verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 again say this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and the rest of chapter 5 and throughout chapter 7 will be what's now known as the Sermon on the Mount that he begins to preach and teach to them as they gathered around. Tradition, tradition places the Sermon on the Mount on a a gentle hill between Capernaum and Tagba at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus would have had the beauty of this inland lake behind him as he taught, but all eyes were on him because Jesus spoke like no one they had ever heard before. Not just his eloquence, not just the way he spoke, but the things that he said were unconventional. Things were different. Verses 1 and 2 would seem to suggest, and some have even argued, that his audience was the 12 disciples. But Matthew chapter 7 verse 28 confirms that his audience was not only the 12 disciples, but also a great multitude who had followed him. There was a huge crowd gathered around. 
And on this day, the attentive crowd heard the religion of their world turned right side up for the first time in their lives. They heard, they heard something radically different than the Pharisees or scribes or anyone else had said to them or had taught them before. It was totally different. Jesus began to speak in paradoxes and riddles, as was sometimes a custom in his time. He called, for instance, the poor rich, the mourners comforted, the meek as heirs of the entire earth. Who had ever heard anything like this before? It was totally contrary to anything that they had been exposed to up to this point. People listened to him, and they listened, and as they listened, they heard Jesus expound the character traits of the citizens of his new kingdom. That's what he did. Uh, this is, by the way, Jesus' first and longest message on record and has been described as the manifesto of his kingdom. It is revered among the literary and religious treasures of the entire human race, acknowledged by almost everyone to be among the highest expressions of religious insight and moral inspiration. The Sermon on the Mount. Uh, for instance, a non-Christian, Mahatma Gandhi, said of it, if I had to face only the Sermon on the Mount, and my own interpretation of it, I should not hesitate to say, oh yes, I am a Christian. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of the Sermon on the Mount, there is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest, greatest preacher that ever was. In this legendary sermon, Jesus indeed offers some unconventional teaching for people who would be called to a radical discipleship for the extraordinary purpose of impacting the world for the glory of God. In order to get there, there had to be this radical teaching. There had to be this kind of teaching that they had never heard before because he was calling them to something that they had never witnessed before, something that they had never done before. How many of you know uh, that if you want to do something you've never done before, you've got to do it, do things that you've never done before. If you want a result that you've never gotten before, you've got to do things in a way that you've never done them before. You've got to be willing to think and to act outside of the box that we often find ourselves confined to and Jesus was preparing them for world transformation. And the only way to do it was with unconventional wisdom and teaching. And so he does this. He does this. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. And he chooses then to start this sermon with what's known as the Beatitudes. The attitudes, moving, lyrical stains that have inspired the hearts of multitudes throughout the ages. Let's talk about this word beatitude. What does it mean? Beatitudes, it's from a Latin root word meaning the blessings. Simply the blessings is what beatitudes means. And that's what Jesus gives in this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at the, 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 the word that begins each of these, this word blessings. Or blessed, rather. Blessed. What does it mean? It means happy or fortunate. But I submit to you that there's much more going on in this word blessed than our understanding of happy and fortunate. There's more happening. There's a deeper meaning to this word as it is here in the text than what we understand it to be. It, 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 it blessed here has been described as a pledge of divine reward from God for the inner spiritual character of the righteous or God's description of the spiritual attitude and state of people who are right with him, blessed. 
This is what, this is what it means. It means. It means a lot more than our, 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 our understanding of happiness because we know that our understanding of happiness idea, our idea of happiness is rooted and it's grounded in our experiences. And God says being blessed is much more than our experiences. It's, it's much more than that. It is, this, it is this thing that flows out of who we are on the inside as it relates to our relationship with God. And the closer we get to him, uh, the more blessed we become. The closer I walk with him, the more this word has significance for us blessed. And I don't know about you, but I feel blessed because I know him. I know him. I know him. I, 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 I have been able to get to know him. I don't know him as well as I would like to know him, but I know him much more, much better now than I knew him before I knew him. And because of that, I feel blessed. Uh, there's a total of eight of these Beatitudes. Today, we'll cover the first four. Total of eight. Today we'll cover the first four. And so the first one we find in verse three. Verse three says this. Blessed, there's that word, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. How is this, how can this be a reality? It's a paradox. How can poor and blessed go in the same sentence? How can they relate to each other? If I'm poor, it means that I lack. It means that I don't have. But Jesus says that the poor in spirit are blessed. What does it mean, poor in spirit? Poor in spirit here means to be humble before God, not arrogant before him, but humble before him. In other words, being and understanding that we are spiritually bankrupt apart from him. Recognizing one's true condition apart from Christ. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. It means admitting that I am absolutely nothing by myself. So there's a whole lot of us that think we're everything by ourselves. That we don't need anybody or uh, anything. Uh, we, we, we're all that. And uh, y'all help me out. We believe that. And so that, 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 that we think we have everything and we are everything by ourselves. But that is not what it means to be poor in spirit. And God does not honor that kind of an attitude. But it means admitting that I'm absolutely nothing by myself, but that I know the one who has everything. I'm nothing, but I know somebody that has it all. Uh, it means coming before him completely broken. Completely broken. Coming before him completely broken. I like what the songwriter says about it. He says this, I came to Jesus as I was weary and worn and sad and I found in him a resting place and he has made me glad. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, admitting and understanding that I'm weary, I'm broken, I'm wounded, I'm sad, but I know somebody who can fix it all. It's, it's, it's a, it's a the picture of it. We, we get a good picture of it in Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican or the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's what it says. You know the story. I'm going to read it to you again because you can see this picture of the poor in spirit come to life in this parable. Here's what it says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says this, Jesus being he, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. <laughs> I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. It's how we receive the kingdom. It's how we are invited to the kingdom, is that our spirit has to be poor. There can be no pride about us. We have to admit honestly and earnestly that without him, we're nothing. I can't stand and look at you and say I'm much better than he is and that, uh, that she, than she is because I do this and I do that. No, I have, to see, I have to say, Jesus, I come to you just as I am, wounded, weary, broken, and worn, and I look for in you, I look for in you a resting place because apart from you, I am nothing. So that's beatitude number one. Number two is in verse four. Verse four says this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn. Who are these people? Who are those who mourn? It's having disdain and grief for everything that's not holy. Having grief for everything that's not holy. We should should mourn when we see degradation, unrighteousness, and injustice around us. I'm going to read that again because y'all, I think y'all kind of going to sleep on me. I'm going to get me a drink of water and we're going to all relax just a little bit. Can I do that? Who are those that mourn? Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who are these people? It's those of us should be. It should be those of us. We should all fit this, uh, that when we see Anything that's ungodly, anything that's unholy, we should mourn about it. That includes all kinds of things. I gave you a brief list, but it includes a lot more. We cannot, as children of God, afford to become blind to or accepting of anything that's unholy. Oh, I wish my voice was working better because I really need to put some emphasis on that. We, we can't afford to do that. We, we can't afford to fall into that. Uh, we must grieve inwardly and sometimes even outwardly. Or we run the risk of being found guilty of being untrue to the values of our master. We have to mourn. It's, it's, it's Isaiah. It's Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 5, when he says, so let me, before I read this verse, verse 5, let me just give some context. And many of you know the context. Chapter 6 of Isaiah is on the heels of chapter 5 of Isaiah. And in chapter 5, Isaiah is lamenting and mourning and, and expressing these woes for the condition and the state of God's people. He's talking about wild grapes that should not have been wild grapes in the vineyard. He's talking about those that were calling wrong right and right wrong. He's talking about a woe unto people who were doing all of these ungodly things. And he is mourning over it. But then we get to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple. And these seraphim are there. And he has this one-on-one experience 
experience with God. He says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord how he lifted up and his train filled the temple. And there was seraphim. Each of them had six wings. And then in verse 5. After the woes on society, after the woes on everybody else. Here's what he says in verse 5. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's mourning over the state and the condition of those around him, including himself. And what's interesting is that right after he has this revelation, the Lord says, who will go? Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'll go. Send me. But it comes because of the mourning that he feels in his spirit. For unrighteousness, for injustice, for ungodliness, for unholiness, including his part to play in it. It's revealed to him when he has this encounter with God. And as a result, he says, I'll go, send me. It's Christ. It's Christ himself in Matthew chapter 23. If Isaiah's not good enough for you, let's look at Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 38. Here's what Jesus says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are set to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Is Jesus mourning. For the condition and the state of those around him. And, and, and here's, what, here's what, what Matthew writes in this beatitude at the end of it in, in verse 4. He says, those people, those that mourn shall be comforted. So here's the good news. Good news is, is that we should have, we should have, uh, we should mourn for things that are ungodly, whatever that is. I don't know, whatever it is, anything that we should mourn for. Uh, but our mourning will be comforted. And here's, here's the good news. Uh, it's, it's, it's comforted partially right now, right? It's comforted partially right now because we have the spirit that dwells with us, and he is our comforter. He is our paraclete. He walks with us, and he gives us comfort day in and day out. But the text says that those that mourn shall be comforted. That means that in the future, what happens right now in part will happen in full. So the, the comfort that we're experiencing right now, because I don't know about you, but when I mourn, whether it's over the loss of a loved one, like the story of my mother I told you earlier, or whether it's over the current, current condition and state of our world, when I mourn, it hurts. And even though Jesus and the Holy Spirit are there to comfort me, it's still painful. But the good news is, uh, and Clara, that at some point, all of the pain will be taken away. All the tears will be dried away. I'm not making it up. It's Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 says this, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes, from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither Shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore? For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So we mourn. And we're comforted partially. But Matthew writes in the second beatitude that we shall be comforted completely. And I don't know about you, but that's the hope that I have. And, and it's not just a hope uh, wishing that it will happen. It's a hope that is a trustworthy word that says that all the tears will be dried away. That I'm going <clears throat> to see mama again. 
and my mourning will turn into joy and there'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more heartache. There'll be no more injustice. There'll be no more wild grapes in the vineyard because the former things will have passed away. And everything will be new. So then we get to beatitude number three. Beatitude number three is found in verse five. Here's what it says in verse five. Blessed are the, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, who, who are the meek? What, what does this mean? What, what does this word mean? It's the Greek word preus. It means pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It means being gentle, being humble, being considerate. That's who the meek are. The meek fit this definition, fit this description. It's the same word, by the way, that Jesus, this word prius is the same word that Jesus uses in later in Matthew in chapter 11, verse 29, when he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It is a model for us to follow. Meekness is a quality, a character, a character trait that we should all desire. In fact, it's one of the character traits that Paul lists in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Here's what it says in 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or meekness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have, have those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Meekness is something that we should aspire to. Now, oftentimes when we when we talk about meekness, we we uh, equate it with the word that rhymes with it. <laughs> Somebody beat me to it. We equate it with weakness. Because we think that being meek and mild means that we're weak and easily taken advantage of. But that, in fact, is not what meekness is. In fact, meekness is not weakness, but meekness uh, gets its, gets its uh, it, it, it has its source in confidence. In other words, it, you can't be the kind of meek that's described in the fruit of the Spirit and the kind of meek that's described in the Beatitudes unless there is a godly confidence in you. Because, look, my confidence in, in, the, in the person I am in God and the God that's in me will allow my personality that I'm talking about that other one. All of us have another one. All of us have multiple, we all have multiple personality disorder. Somebody laugh, say something, because you know you fit it. You know there's another one in there. <laughs> and, but my confidence in the God I serve and who I am in him allows me to, to keep that other one bottled up and me to be meek and mild uh, in the biblical definition of what that means because I'm, I'm not worried about you running over me. I'm not worried about you taking advantage of me because I know the God I serve. And I know that the fruit of the spirit that I have inside of me says that I have to be meek and put myself second like mama did in order to be a true Christian. And so he says this, he says, the meek, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Simply means that the converse or the antithesis of that is the person who believes that they will have everything because of what they know. 
uh, who they are, uh, what their connections are, or who they've stepped on to get there. Right? We all know people like that, right? Who think that the earth is mine. The world is mine. And I'm going to do anything I can to get it. That's not meekness. Meekness says that I am going to keep my uh, self bottled up so that Jesus can lead me to inheritance, the inheritance that he has for me. And it's, it, it's rooted in my confidence in who he is. So then we make it to our last one for the day. And it's in verse 6. Verse 6 says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or they shall be filled. This fourth beatitude uh, are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, it simply means to long for that which is right. To long for that which pleases God. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To, you ever, ever had a longing for something that you just couldn't get rid of? That just, that just plagued you every day that you had to satisfy this longing? You know, it's kind of like when you, when you haven't eaten in a long time. And you get that sound that comes from down in there and you just can't wait to get to that T-bone steak. And you're longing for it, although it's a long way away and you, just, you can just imagine it. And you can imagine it so strongly that your mouth begins to water. Some of y'all are doing that right now because it's Mother's Day and you, you got big dinner plans. And you think, boy, if he just hurry up and finish, I'm longing for that dinner. But it means to long for those things that please God, that which is right. You know what I learned? I learned some time ago, because I hadn't always thought and lived this way, John. I learned a long time ago that it takes so much energy to try to figure out how to live in a way that is focused on getting away with what I can get away with. It takes a lot of energy to live that way. It takes a lot of energy. It's, it, 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 I found out that it's far less stress, stressful and draining to just seek to do what's right. You'll have a lot less sleepless nights. You'll have a lot less times trying to remember the lie you told so that you don't mess it up later. Life is so much less stressful and so much more peaceful when you take the difficulty out of it and just keep it simple. Just hunger and thirst and long to do the right thing. And it makes it much more simple. If, here it is. If, if, if the aim is anything other than righteousness, the result will always end in futility. If your aim is just, so, so I know you say, man, I've been praying about this thing. I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to turn what to do. Here, let me help you out. Because sometimes we pray and we know we ain't praying for the right thing. We know we're trying to get an answer we want rather than the, the godly answer. So let me just help me make, let me help you keep it simple, right? If the aim is anything other than righteousness, that, you, you, you can cut half your prayer time off right there. <laughs> you can cut your prayer time in half, right? If you're praying and wishing and hoping for anything that's unrighteous, just stop right there. If the aim is anything other than righteousness, the result will not sometimes, but will always end in futility and vanity. Always. It's Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon writes about this very thing. Solomon, you know Solomon, he was the wisest, richest uh, man in the world. And he writes about this very thing in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 when he says this in verses 1 and 2. It says this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
Solomon goes on to name some of the things that are futile that he can personally testify about because he's lived through it. He says, wisdom is vanity. Self-indulgence is vanity. Toil is vanity. Wealth and honor are vanity. All are vanity apart from what's really important. What's really important. But he doesn't leave us hanging. He does all of that from chapter 1 to, through chapter 11. And then in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, he tells us exactly what's important. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says this in verse 1. Remember now, your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And the very last verse of chapter 12, the very last verse of Ecclesiastes, he says, this is what's important. He says, the end of the matter. All has been heard. I've said all I've said. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Solomon, in other words, says, I'm not telling you what somebody told me. I'm not telling you what I heard. I've been through some things in my life. I've been poor, and then I was rich. I've been not so wise, and then I was wise. I had no women. Then I had a thousand. <laughs> Y'all going to have to help me with this. And he says, I've been through all of that. And let me just write this and tell you that none of that matters. All of that is vanity. All of that is futility. Here is the end of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. It is the whole duty of man. Hunger, in other words, Solomon simply says this, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you do it, that hole that you've been trying to fill, Matthew says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the hole will be filled. Somebody should say amen because all of us have been there. I know I have. I've been trying to fill it with all the wrong stuff. But when I found Jesus, when I met Jesus, the hole was filled in my soul. In closing, here's the question. Does your character align with that of a disciple? Does your character align with that of a disciple? Poor in spirit. Mourn for ungodliness. Meek. Seeking righteousness. Does it align? Christ gave the Beatitudes because in him they are both expected and achievable. Because I know we say, I can't, I, there's no possible way I can do that stuff. But he gave them to us because in him, they are achievable. Here's what, I'm, here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you this. Christ was a lot more than just a teacher. If he was just a teacher who gave us this and then left it there, that wouldn't be so good. But he was much more than just a teacher who gave us these lofty expectations and then left us on our own. I like what Oswald Chambers says about it. Here's what he says about it. Chambers says this, if Jesus is a teacher only, then all he can do is to tantalize us by erecting a standard we cannot come anywhere near. But if being born again from above, we know him first as Savior. We know that he did not come to teach us only. He came to make us what he teaches we should be. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his way with us. We can do it. 
if we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but as I look back over my life and as I review these Beatitudes and this Sermon on the Mount, I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have and still continue right now to be blessed by the very best. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He came to take away sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's Alpha and Omega. He's author and finisher. He's beginning and end. He's kinsman redeemer. He's, 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 he's master. He's king. He's Lord of lords, king of kings. He's all of that and more. He's the very best, and he's blessed us all. So we thank him today. On this Mother's Day, let's be encouraged that we have a great example to follow in Jesus. Lord, we thank you. We honor you. We love you. Thank you for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. Thank you, Lord, for giving us what we need for life and for godliness. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, well, with that, want to extend uh, this very important invitation that if you, if you happen to be here and you don't know him, we want you to, we want you to, to solve that issue today. Don't let another moment pass. If that is you, don't let another moment pass without solving that issue right now. And we have, we, we will be glad, we will gladly pray with you um, and help you to enter into this relationship that will change your life with Jesus. So let us know. We have people standing in the back, deacons and elders and myself, let us know if we can pray with you so that you can enter into that relationship and your life be changed forever. And then secondly, if you have a desire to be a part of our family here at Bethel Hope, um, we'd like to pray with you and lead you to that relationship as well. We want to take care of the first one first if, it, if it's still in question. And then we'd love to welcome you to our church family. Um, if you've been visiting, uh, even if it's your first time and you decide you want to do that, let us know and we'll uh, help you through that process. Very easy process. Let us know. Um, so let us know immediately after church and we'll be glad to do that. Um, and then lastly, want to recognize any first-time visitors that we might have visiting with us today. If you're a first-time visitor, would you stand and let us recognize you?